0: And we have dreams. This voyage was dawned. For him, it was the adventure. There may have been an element. He wanted fame and glory. He wasn't averse to taking risks. when you're alone, just you and the ocean. It's the whole of your universe. It's totally indifferent. It's there waiting for you if you make a slip. Then imagination is the danger. It's no longer about heroes and adventures at sea about isolation and the delicate mechanism of the mind.
1: In 1967, Francis Chichester became the first person ever to sail around the world by themselves. He set out from the UK uh, solo sailing in the Gypsy Moth Four. I don't know what happened to one, two, and three, but that doesn't sound too great. 1966 is when he started sailing. The boat's 53 feet long, so roughly from the edge of the ramp over there over to the platform somewhere. That's all the bigger this boat was. And sailing by himself, he sailed south around Africa and then over to Australia. And he stopped when he got to Australia to uh, do some pretty major repairs on his boat that had taken a beating, bring on fresh supplies, refit the boat and everything like that. And then he continued on around South America and back up to the UK as the first person who ever soloed around the world by themselves. And when he got back, there was uh, just this tremendous fanfare. People got really caught up into the story. Um, news articles were everywhere about it. There were parades all over the country. Um, he was even knighted by Queen Elizabeth after this. He was 66 years old when he did this uh, voyage. And he was kind of known as like a cultural icon in, in Great Britain. He had been a pilot during World War I, great adventurer and things like that. So a lot of people got swept up into this story. And uh, the a year later, the London Sunday Times kind of wanted to capitalize on some of this popularity this momentum. And so in 1968, the newspaper sponsored a uh, race around the world. And the race was that you would follow the same route that Chichester had had done, uh, but the only new rule was that you couldn't stop at all. They wanted to see who could be the first person ever to solo all the way around the world without stopping once. So setting off from London, ending there as well. And and, uh, they sponsored this race. There were prizes for who could do it first, who could do it the fastest, and uh, this, this documentary Deep Water follows along the nine men who set out to try this, to, to, to give it a shot. Uh, it's an, a fascinating picture uh, into some of the, the physical rigors of just what it took for, for this kind of voyage, the physical challenges of sailing like this. but. Really where the documentary ended up was diving into some of the mental, the psychological, the emotional conditions that these these sailors were under. It really wanted to explore the the inner effects of what it was doing to to these guys internally. And I think that that's where we tend to go when we read certain passages of Scripture, when we see things like the miracles of Jesus that we've been investigating this month of February. So 2020 for us is all eyes fixed on Jesus. We want to get to know Him really, really well. for the month of February, we've been looking at the miracles of Jesus and the supernatural aspects of, of His ministry and His life. And when we look at these miracles, the tendency for us is to dive into some of those internal issues for ourselves. You know, we want to know how, does the, how do these miracles that Jesus perform, how do they relate to our lives? How do I apply it to my life, right? That's the Bible study question. If you've ever been in a Bible study or a small group, the question inevitably comes up, how do I apply this to my life? And so today in our Bible reading in Matthew chapter 8, we see Jesus calming the storm, right, on the Sea of Galilee, and instantly, it's almost as though it's an automatic thing, great, Jesus calms the storm, and that means that He can calm the storms of my life, and, and how does this apply to me? And I'm not saying that's, that's wrong, that we shouldn't do that. But when we go too quickly away from the, the physical, literal, historical implications of what was going on in this event, we miss something powerful. When we look away from 12 guys, 12 disciples and Jesus on a boat setting sail from Capernaum on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, sailing 15 miles across on their way to the region of the Gerasenes where they're going to preach the gospel and that that this was an actual storm that they were actually caught up in and that they actually thought they were going to die. And Jesus literally calms the wind and the waves. We miss something pretty powerful The painting on the screen uh, was done by Rembrandt about 400 years ago, and um, maybe we'll put it up on the big screen so you can see it really well. Uh, Interestingly, this was the only seascape that Rembrandt ever painted. It was also stolen a few years ago from its museum, so no one knows where it is. Well, one person knows where it is. Um, We don't, unless it's you. Then you know where it is, and we want it back. The historical records, of we, we know what it looked like and that's, that's great, there have been copies and things like that, but the, the calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee was a popular subject matter for a lot of Renaissance painters, romantic era painters. Typically what they would do though is they would take a really wide shot of the, of the scene. You know, how big can we make the storm clouds look and how big can we make the waves feel? And, and as, a, as a viewer for most of these paintings, they wanted you to feel the immensity of the storm. Rembrandt instead zoomed all the way in on the boat He wanted to put you on the boat so that you could feel the terror of what it would would have been like. And he made sure that you could see the different facial features of all of the disciples and and how how terrified each of them was. There's one of them that's throwing uh, throwing up over the side of the boat. He wanted you to really get the sense that this was not a metaphor for them. You know, you don't get the idea that as this storm is happening, the disciples in the back of their head are thinking, gosh, this rather reminds me of the internal turmoil of my life and and maybe Jesus can actually help me with the storms of my inner life. No, you get the sense that they really thought that they were actually going to die. This was very real for them, a literal experience for them. And I'm not even sure that that was on Jesus' mind, that as he's calming this storm, that one day he thought Christians in, in the United States were gonna think, gosh, this rather reminds me of the internal turmoil of my life. I'm not so sure that's what Jesus had in mind when he's doing this. We, when we go too qu- quickly to that question, how does this apply to my life? We end up reading the Bible in a certain way that, that, that kind of misses the point. We, we assume that the Bible is about us, and it's not. The Bible is not about us. The Bible is for us, But it's about God. That's the subject of the Bible. And as we're focusing this year, all eyes focused on Jesus, the question I think that's most important for us to ask about every single Scripture that we read in the Bible is, what does this tell me about God? What does this passage that I'm reading tell me about who God is? I think that's the most important question that you can ask when reading Scripture. And when we do that for Jesus, we actually find Him saying something very profound about this instance that, that, that who God is and who we see Jesus portraying himself to be is unique in this miracle. Other miracles that Jesus performs say something, something different, but this one in particular actually speaks about his identity, who he really is, says something profound. In fact, the Old Testament is full of, of scriptures that actually use this exact same language about who God is, about God's interaction with the natural world. And Jesus was a fan of the Psalms. He quoted them often. Here are a few of the Psalms that use some of this exact same language. Psalm 65, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves and the turmoil of the nations? Psalm 89, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. He stilled the storm to a whisper, Psalm 107, the waves of the sea were hushed. So as the gospel writers are including this miracle of Jesus stilling the seas, ruling over the wind and the waves, they're actually pointing us to a very specific reality about the nature of God, that here is Jesus doing something that the Bible says only God can do. Only God has the authority over the natural world. So when the disciples at the end of Matthew 8 ask this question, who is this man that can rule over the wind and the waves and they will obey him? The the writer of the Gospels are actually calling us to answer that question by looking at this and saying, he's not just a man. There's something more powerful going on here in this miracle, in this event, that when we're talking about Jesus, when we're dealing with Jesus, we are actually looking at God. We are dealing with God in this instance. He is the only one with that kind of power. This is only something that God can do. The English writer C.S. Lewis once famously wrote that when you really investigate the life of Jesus and the claims of the, of the New Testament and the Bible, there are only three conclusions that are open to you about who you think Jesus is. One, he said, was he's a liar, that, that he's just making it all up. Two is he's a lunatic, that Jesus was just insane. Or three, the only other conclusion you can come to is that he is the God of heaven. That's how Lewis wrote it. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the God of heaven. There are no other options open to us about the identity of the man, Jesus Christ, that that's who he really is. And we tend to try to apply other labels to him, lesser labels. He was a good teacher, a prophet, all these things. But when it comes right down to it, especially in miracles like this, when Jesus is doing something only God can really do, that's what's open to us. That's the decision we have about how we're going to relate to Jesus Christ. Is that how we approach Him? Is that the power that we recognize He has in our lives? If you've ever been around Hope on a weekend when we do baptisms, which is almost every weekend here, you'll know that as a part of our baptism service, we like to recite the words of the Apostles' Creed together. And we do that because it's a a way for us to unite in, in in a historical and universally accepted statement creed about what we believe God is and who we believe Jesus is. But it's not the only creedal statement that historically the church has affirmed. There are several. One of the reasons why we choose the Apostles' Creed is it's the shortest. um, And we don't have time every Sunday to recite the whole five pages of the Athanasian Creed. We've got other things to do. um, So the Apostles' Creed is helpful there. One of the creeds that we affirm as a church historically, uh, and the oldest, is actually the Nicene Creed. Uh, The Nicene Creed was written in 325, so Christianity was finally legal, not persecuted in 312. And about that time, the uh, religious leaders and uh, bishops around the Mediterranean region got together and they said, we're finally going to decide what we believe about Jesus. That question that the disciples asked, who is this man that the wind and the waves would obey him? They wanted to get together and write it down so that they could agree and we would have something to say. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ, what we affirm about our faith. Because there were some people at the time, uh, Christian leaders at the time in the, in the fourth century, who thought Jesus wasn't really God. God. I mean, he was just a man, but he was special in some capacity and he could do certain things and God had a purpose, but he wasn't divine. And there were other people who said, yeah, but when you read these miracles and you see Jesus doing things that only God can do, he must be. And they said, but maybe then he's just not a man. He's only divine some kind of a super spiritual being. And they really had these debates and had these arguments over months and months at the Council of Nicaea. And finally, they agreed on this language that they felt the most comfortable with. And this is what we believe about Jesus. And I'd like for us to read this out loud together. You don't need to stand up or anything, but we're gonna read this from uh, the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. That last line was probably the most debated thing in the months that the council met. The essence of the Father was the language that they decided on. And the Greek word for that is homoousion. So the Greek homo means the same and usion means being or substance. The Latin that came out of this was consubstantial, that Jesus is consubstantial with the Father. That they're, they're distinct in their personhood, right? God in three persons. But they're the same stuff, basically. That Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are made of the same being, the same essence. That when you are confronting Jesus Christ and really getting to know Him, that that's God you're relating to, talking with. And when you finally get to that place in your relationship with Jesus, where He is God, and that that's how you accept Him as part of your life, at that point, then His power can become something very real for those internal metaphorical storms in your life. Because I don't know about you, but I wouldn't trust anybody with the substance of my life other than God. I, think, I don't think you should settle for anything less than the power of God in your life to make a true difference. And so if you really want to trust Jesus Christ, then that's how you have to affirm who He is, what He is, that He is God. And that's what allowed the disciples in the boat to be so amazed by what was happening because they weren't crying out to some invisible, ethereal, mysterious, invisible God of the universe. They were actually talking to the God that was on their boat, that Jesus Christ was right there with them. He experienced the wind and the waves with them. He knew exactly what they were going through, and that's true for you as well, that when Jesus is God for you, He knows exactly what you're going through in your life. He can relate because He's been there. It's one of the mysterious blessings of following Jesus Christ, is knowing that God knows exactly where you are right now. This was such an important part of Jesus' life that it was included in every gospel account, and I love the way that Mark puts it because it captures this this both and, this fully God and fully man aspect of who Jesus is. When, When they wake him up, it says, Jesus was in the stern in the back of the boat sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, Don't you care if we drown? Don't you care? I wonder if any of you have asked that of God recently. If you've been in your prayer time, in your quiet time, as you're reading about who Jesus is and and exploring these issues in your own life, if you've asked or wondered, God, don't you care about what's happening in my life? Don't you care that this this illness is affecting our family so much? Don't you care about the tragedy that just happened, about my job, about my marriage, about my family? God, don't you see what's happening to me, that I'm drowning? Have you been asking that of God recently? And do you know that he hears you, that he sees you going through these things? When the Sunday Times announced this race in 1968, there was an assumption that, that only professional sailors were going to want to undertake such a tremendous voyage. I mean, no one had ever done it before. It was a very challenging thing. So they assumed that only professional sailors were gonna, were gonna sign up for this race, uh, mostly because it was also so expensive. I mean, it's expensive to own the boat that could make it around the world. It's expensive to have the, the gear, the equipment, the supplies needed. It's expensive to take a year off from whatever paying job you had. And what they weren't expecting was somebody actually signing up for some other reasons. Let's take a look.
2: In the spring of 1968, some of the world's most experienced sailors began to gather in the ports of Britain. They were stepping forward as contenders in the greatest endurance test of all time.
3: This wasn't a race in the normal sense of the word. You could leave whenever you liked, but you had to leave before October the 31st to avoid the really severe winter weather at Cape Horn. The first man to do it would get the golden blue. The boat that went round fastest would get the big prize of 5,000 pounds. This was something that a human hadn't yet attempted to do. First of all, we didn't know if a boat could take it. Secondly, there was considerable doubt if a human could take it. Psychiatrists said that a human would go mad if they tried to do it. We're talking about 10 months of loneliness. But the more people told me it wasn't possible and I couldn't do it, the more I was convinced I could do it. The one I thought would prove real competition was Bernard Mattessio. He was highly experienced.
0: Bernard était un poète et un philosophe. Et il a eu une soif de prouver à lui-même qu'il était capable de faire ça. Il voulait être le premier à avoir fait un tour du monde. C'était un défi vis-à-vis de
2: lui-même. C'était pas pour gagner une course. The French Adventure, Bernard Mortisier. And the British Merchant Marine Captain, Robin Knox Johnson, were among nine men announced in the final lineup. Each knew the winners would earn their place in history.
3: They were proper seamen, experienced sailors. And then
0: there was the mystery man, Don Crowhurst.
1: I kind of hope 5,000 pounds translates to a lot more these days. I didn't look up with the conversion rate, but that doesn't sound like a lot for making it all the way around the world by yourself. Um, Donald Crowhurst, as you watch the documentary and and read some things about his life, you get the distinct sense that, that here was a man who had asked on more than one occasion of God, don't you care? Don't you care about my life? Um, he was not raised in a very well-to-do family. Um, he was profoundly disappointed with how his life had gone to this point. He was trained as an engineer, actually, um, and all of the entrepreneurial ideas that he had, uh, businesses he tried to start up largely failed. Um, at this point, during the, uh, at the start of the race, he was 36 years old. He had a wife and four kids, and they were kind of scraping by on a living where he was selling door-to-door some navigational equipment for for sailboats. So he knew a little bit about sailing, but, but really not enough for this. One of the friends that they interviewed in this documentary who knew him well said that Don was almost a weekend sailor. That, that he was kind of a hobbyist. He knew the ins and outs of the boat, um, but everyone was largely skeptical. I mean, this was a true underdog, if there ever really was one. And I don't know about you, but um, I, I don't have a whole lot of experience sailing. Um, we Iowans are not known as a seafaring people. Some of you might be. I mean, I, you, I, you see some true sailboats out on the lake every once in a while, um, but for the most largely in the Midwest, we don't, we don't sail. So that was why I was incredibly surprised one summer when I was going to spend a couple of months in Turkey on a missions trip in college. Look, it's me with hair. (laughs) I think it was after this missions trip that I came home and I told my senior pastor, you know, I'd really love to get into full-time ministry. And 15 years later, here we are, no more hair. (laughs) It's what happens. It's what happens. Um... I I went on this trip, Uh, our team got there, and uh, we were teaming up with a missionary couple, Jim and Renata, and they had been in the country for a long time. They're still there at this point. Um, And one of their missions every summer was to put on a a youth camp, Uh, similar to a camp that we have here in the States. There were Bible stories, there was uh, music and singing, and then you do activities. Uh, And since it was situated on the southern coast of Turkey, right on the Mediterranean Sea, one of the activities that Jim wanted to bring into this was sailing. Jim grew up on Lake Michigan. His family uh, had a big boat that they could take out on the Great Lakes for months at a time, and uh, he just loved it, and he wanted to bring sailing into this youth camp experience so that uh, he could actually, you know, there's something quite different about being on a sailboat and talking about Jesus calming the storm at sea and being on the Mediterranean and sailing around the same waters where Paul planted churches and reading about those things. It's a profound experience, and when I got there, Jim said, Eli, you're going to teach, help me teach these kids how to sail, I said, Jim, I don't know how to sail. And he said, well, you checked the box on your application form that you were a strong swimmer. I said, yeah, I did. Sounds kind of different to me. And he said, don't worry about it. Not really. I'll show you everything you need to know. Um, you can see some of the boats, they were like for a day, for a couple of people, just enough for kids to get the idea. And he said, I'll give you the basics so that you can help me teach them during the camp. And, and a couple of the things that he showed me were, were pretty interesting. One of the things that I struggled with, that every kid struggled with, the, the simple problem was how do you get your boat off of the beach out to sea? Uh, so, you know, here you've got, you know, you got the shore and we would, we would teach them to sail maybe like to some, there's some rocky islands offshore about a half mile, enough to occupy an hour or so. Well, I don't know if you've ever sailed before, but most of us, if you've been on a beach, you've been on a beach, right? Ocean. Um, how often do you feel the wind actually blowing from behind you out to sea? Not very often, right? It doesn't happen. Typically, you feel the wind coming at you from the ocean, right? And it's blowing straight into your face. And here you've got your boat, and it's a boat, and you want to get out to sea, but the wind is blowing in the wrong direction. And so what would happen is myself and the kids who we were teaching would try to get out there and they'd set their sail straight into the wind and it would actually blow the boat backwards. And the reason Jim needed a strong swimmer was so I would swim out 50 yards and push the boat in the right direction again. It was a great summer, I learned a lot. So so how sailors overcome this, and it's the most simple technique that they all use, without a motor, you've just got to sail in the wind and you need to operate that, is is the uh, technique called tacking, T-A-C-K-I-N-G. And how that works is, because you can't sail straight into the wind, what sailors do is they actually start off by sailing almost parallel to the shore. And they set their sail so that the wind that's blowing into shore will catch their sail and almost pinch the boat against the water. So it's like a marble between your fingers and it sort of shoots your boat sideways, slightly angled away from shore. And then after you've done that for a while, you you change tack, that's where the English phrase to change tack comes from, it's not tacked with a T, it's a sailing term to change tack, and you go in the other direction. Again, slightly off angle from the shore, And the wind, again, similarly, even though it's coming straight in, will start to push you sideways, but a little bit away. And that's how sailors will get out to sea, is they just sort of zigzag along until they finally get to where they want to go. And it's a very confusing thing to to get your mind around because it just doesn't seem to make sense. It's not the shortest distance between two points. It's incredibly inefficient to get to where you're going, but Jim would use this to talk about life because how often in your life do you set the sails and you point the bow of your ship straight ahead and the wind is just at your back and it's smooth sailing all the time? Not very often. If you're like me anyway, it doesn't feel like that. Oftentimes in life, it feels like the wind is just coming straight at your face, There's some kind of storm out there. It's hard. Nothing's happening the way you think it should. And what we're called to is to maybe try a different approach. That if what you're doing in life isn't working right now, what this showed me and taught me is that you just need to change tack every now and then. And it's in those inefficiencies of life where I think God actually speaks to us and teaches us lessons about patience, about contentment about long-suffering, developing the kind of character it takes to get through. Instead of stubbornly saying, I'm going to go this direction, I'm not going to change my mind, God actually says, you might need to try something different. Make a different decision. Do something a little bit different than you've been trying before, and that God can steer you through life that way. So about a month into this voyage that Don Crowhurst is on, he left right in time. The deadline was October 31st. He left that very day. And he was about a month into his experience when he finally realized that uh, his inexperience and and lack of preparation was actually gonna catch up to him. And he had an important decision to make about whether or not he was gonna even continue. Let's take a look.
4: I was feeling pleased with myself when I noticed bubbles were blowing out of the port furred hatch. All the evidence was that the compartment was full of water. November the seventh, Thursday saw that more screws had fallen out of the self-steering gear. That's foregone now. The cockpit hatch has been leaking and has flooded the engine compartment and electrics. This bloody boat has just fallen to pieces.
3: There were a lot of hatches on these outer hulls and they were all leaking. While he was in these calm waters, he could walk out to them and bail them out of the bucket. Once he got into the Southern Ocean, the boat would be swept by waves. There was no way he could empty them. The hulls would fill and he would drown.
4: November the 15th, Racked by the growing awareness that I must soon decide whether or not I can go on in the face of the actual situation.
0: I think doubt started to set in when reality started to set in. And the reality wasn't quite as perfect as the idea. This is why ideas are dangerous.
4: As the boat stands in its present condition, my chances of survival would not, I
0: think, be better than 50-50. He knew the risk of going into the Southern Ocean was very, very high indeed.
2: Crowhurst was now heading into that ocean in a leaking boat he had to bail by hand. And confirmation of just how dangerous those seas could be came later that November.
3: I'd heard about Ridgway and Blythe. Next news I got was off New Zealand, and I learned about King and Fougeron. Bill King got turned over by a big wave off South Africa and lost his mast. There was the Italian. The stress made him so ill he had a stomach ulcer. There was another French sailor. He had 27 days of most appalling weather, and he packed it in.
0: It came down to the last four. Tetley, Knox Johnson. Moitissier and Don Crowhurst, only four.
2: The odds were shortening on Crowhurst all the time, but his progress was painfully slow. His only communication with land was through occasional telephone calls, patched via radio operators and through Morse code cables, and the cables cataloged the problems. Crowhurst was averaging barely 60 miles a day, half the speed of Moitissier in a boat that would not stay afloat in heavy seas.
1: As I said before, um, Donald Crowhurst did not have much money. So in order to finance this trip, he got investors to, to provide him boat and gear and all that stuff. Um, but to do that, he signed a contract saying that uh, in order, if, if you left the race early or if you didn't go at all, um, that basically you're gonna give up your house and all of your possessions, all the things that he had. He, he gambled it all on this on this, one shot at kind of making a name for himself, and it wasn't going well. So he had a difficult decision to make. If he, if he quit early, he was going to lose everything. And he was already kind of known as this underdog public figure. People were really pulling for him, and uh, he was afraid of what, what the cost would be of, of quitting. And the only other option, it seemed, of the two, either to, to go home, to call it a day, to face the music, was to keep going on a 50 50 chance. And interestingly, he didn't do either of those two things. Uh, instead, he, he got lost on purpose. He wandered off the path. That's how the, the Hebrew word for sin, that we translate sin, hatah, in Hebrew means to wander off the path, to get lost. And that's what he did. So he was at the point in the Atlantic Ocean where the western edge of Africa is relatively close to the eastern edge of Brazil, relatively close. And he decided that what he was going to do was actually just sail over to the coast of Argentina and Brazil, and he was just going to stay there, stagnant and floating. But he was going to report back false coordinates as though he was actually still in the race. This is pre-GPS, so the only reporting they could do was by radio every once in a while, and then the handwritten logs. And so he was also keeping a second set of fake logs in his book, and reporting back that I'm still in the race, I'm doing fine hiding what was really going on, the problems that he was really having, all the while staying stagnant off the coast of South America. And he thought that as the racers came by on the way back, that he would just sort of slip in behind and finish fourth or fifth, and no one would really notice what had happened, and and that he would just kind of fade away. And he wouldn't have to face any of the, the consequences of this mistake that he had made. And that was kind of his perspective. For months, he was doing this. Months he was lying to himself, lying to the world, and and, and he was doing it so much that he began to believe that this false self was actually who he really was, that he was doing fine, that he was telling the truth, that that he really was still in the race. There's a proverb about this, Proverbs 16.25, about what this does to us, and let's read this together out loud. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. I think that that's, that's a lot of how sin works in our lives. You make a mistake, we wander off the path, and then the more we do it, we start to believe that that's actually just who we really are. In the uh, pictures of the trip I was on in Turkey, you saw me playing the guitar. Uh, the other box I checked on the application form was that I could play the guitar and that meant I was going to lead worship all summer for this underground church in this camp. Um, so be careful what boxes you check on applications. Uh, I had never led worship before. I started playing guitar when I was 16. My parents bought me a guitar for my 16th birthday. Um, I was kind of surprised. I'd never shown any interest in it. It wasn't what I was expecting for my birthday that year. Um, I couldn't put it down. I just could not stop playing. It was like a real Brian Adams moment for me, right? I got my first real six string Played till my fingers bled, which is actually true. Uh, what they don't tell you is that when you run your fingertips over steel strings a lot, it hurts. It hurts a lot when you start learning how to play. Uh, you get cuts, blisters, all kinds of nasty stuff on your fingers, and it stings. But over time, the more you practice, the more you develop thick calluses on your fingertips, it doesn't hurt anymore. You can play, and there's no more pain. And I think that's how sin works in our lives. Now, the first time you wander off the path and you make a mistake... You feel it. It stings. It hurts in your heart. It hurts in your soul. And you notice it. It's, it's that voice of God that's telling you to come back home, to stop what you're doing. But the more you do it, the more you practice it, the better you get at it, the more you hide, the more calluses start to form on your heart and you stop feeling it as much. It doesn't hurt as much anymore. And you start to believe that this false self is really just who you are. And it doesn't doesn't mean that Don was a bad person, right? I think that's where another lie about sin comes in, that I make mistakes, I wander off the path, I live a false self, that makes me evil. That makes me bad. I don't think that that's actually the case. Because the response that Jesus gives as he calms the storm with his disciples is interesting. He says, you have little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves and it was completely calm. It's an interesting question that Jesus asks. Why are you so afraid? Fear, I think, is at the root of most of our sinful decisions. The false self that we live out, afraid of what people are really going to think. Don was afraid of of embarrassment. He was afraid of his family. He was afraid of uh, financial consequences. All of these fears compounded on him and produced just an overwhelming guilt for him. And I feel like I can relate to that. That it's actually fear that I think keeps us stuck in life keeps us from moving forward or from going home. And it's that fear that God wants to address in our lives. And it's that fear that God wants to overcome. One of the other things the Bible talks about that Jesus does that only God can do is forgive sins. Oftentimes in a healing miracle, you'll hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders get all bent out of shape and you say, only God can forgive sins. Only God can compel the natural world to do what it's supposed to do. Only God can forgive, and Jesus says, that's me. I am the one who has the power to take away that fear, to take away that guilt, to take away that shame, and to keep you moving forward in life. That's something only Jesus can do for you, set you free from your sin. Another example from the Old Testament that Jesus echoes in this instance about the nature of fear and captivity is is actually found in Exodus chapter 14. 14. As the Israelites are being released from slavery in Egypt, again, which is another metaphor for sin, captivity, slavery, something that's got you stuck. As they're being released from that, they encounter the Red Sea in front of them, and then as they're stopped there, the Egyptian army is pursuing them from behind, waiting to overtake them again. And they get afraid, and they get angry, and they don't see a way out. And it's at that moment that that Moses answers the people, and he says in verse 13, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. You see, when you accept the power of Jesus in your life, when you really get to know him as God, with the power to overcome every obstacle, to take away every fear, that's when you have the ability to move on in your life. That's when you have the ability to to be set free from whatever's holding you back. And it's only through Jesus Christ that we have that ability. In a relationship with Him, that's when you can truly live. Would you stand with me and pray and we're gonna sing one more song about Jesus Christ meeting those needs for us. God, we are so grateful for your son who you sent in this world, that you came down into our lives, God, to experience what life is like for us, to know what we're going through, and then to have the power for us to live. And I pray for all of us, God, here in this room, that as we leave this place today, you would leave with, we would leave with your power pushing us forward, leading us into how you're calling each one of us to live. Thank you that you give us that power. Thank you that you offer us a relationship through Jesus Christ. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.